0: And a warm Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold and it is now time for hour two of Guy Talk. If you missed any of hour one, you missed a great hour. So you can always go check it out at myfaithradio.com. There's a podcast there waiting for you after the show. So I've got the same power panel here. They didn't go anywhere, which makes me very happy. I've got a professor, a pastor and a Sunday school teacher. I've got Greg, Tom and Jeff. Gentlemen, welcome back for hour two. High Thankfully bell.
1: you didn't kick yeah. us out, so we're glad nah. to be here. <laughs> yeah.
0: Should we make any small talk? What did you think of the game? Anything like that? What do you... Skip it? What game? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped I know. watching them. <laughs> C.S. Lewis has a great line, which I love. What isn't eternal is eternally out of date. Hmm. That's a good one. Wow. Yeah. 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 He had a lot of good ones. He did. He had a tendency of saying really smart things. All right. Now, in the green room prior to the show today, we were talking a little bit about Hebrews 6, and I don't want to open up that discussion because we're going to do that later at some point. But question that came in is, is blasphemy the only sin that is unforgivable by God? Yes, I would say. Um, now, that passage
2: about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit it, or or speak against the Holy Spirit, I think it says in the verse after that is can be interpreted one of two ways. Um, you can either say that was attributing Jesus's power instead of to God to applying it to Satan, and therefore only people who were living at the time of Jesus can commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or the alternative... Uh, interpretation is that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or is rejecting the Holy Spirit, rejecting the Holy Spirit's call. Remember, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. God is calling all men everywhere to believe in Him. Creation declares His glory. He stands at the heart of every man and knocks, and He says, "Whoever opens the door, I will come in and 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 save them." Basically, it's a picture of salvation. So. Some believe that that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable or unforgivable sin, is simply rejecting the Holy Spirit's call to believe and be saved. And therefore, it can still happen today, obviously in the unsaved, but it cannot happen for a believer because a believer has already responded yes to that call and has been saved and is filled with the Holy Spirit. Guys, what's your take?
1: I'm with you there because the the work of the Holy Spirit is not so much to draw attention to the Holy Spirit, but to testify about Jesus, testify about our sin, testify about our need for him, and when we reject the word of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's the one that gives us the awakening anyway, to have the spiritual awakening to even know Jesus is Lord. When that comes and we reject that, that would be as close as I would understand blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because those who believe— even when they die, sins they've committed they haven't even thought about or whatever, not an issue. But those that have not received Jesus and have rejected him especially, that's an even bigger one.
3: Yeah, I, the the position that's, that suggests that it's impossible today is based on some pretty sound biblical scripture. It said, you know, the Jewish leaders at Jesus' day, according to this particular um, article I'm reading right now, committed the unpardonable sin by accusing Jesus Christ in person on earth— of being Mm demon-possessed. They had no excuse for such an action, this writer says. They were not speaking out of ignorance or misunderstanding. The Pharisees knew that Jesus was the Messiah sent by God to save Israel. They knew the prophecies were being fulfilled. They saw Jesus' wonderful works, and they heard his clear presentation of truth. Yet they deliberately chose to deny the truth and slander the Holy Spirit standing before the light of the world bathed in his glory. They, de- they defiantly closed their eyes and became willfully blind. Jesus pronounced that that sin is unforgivable. But also, as you've just mentioned, for us today, there is an unpardonable sin, and that's the definitively, um, the rejection, be definitive about rejecting Jesus Christ as God's uh, provision for salvation. That's the unpardonable
1: sin. That will not be forgiven. What i have always been astounded at as a pastor is how people can be presented with the truth, whether it is health, whether it is what they eat or drink, you know, whether it is anything else and how they can reject that when it's right there in front of them. And we have a tendency to do that not only in the spiritual realm, we do that in the physical realm. I mean, my mom and dad uh, grew up and served in World War II. And I remember as a kid them smoking. Well, finally, in the 60s, they quit smoking. Well, then all the information started to come out about how bad that can be for you, and you need to be careful. And yet I see people still puffing a lot and not thinking it's going to have any effect. You know, the truth is something that we have a hard time grasping when it doesn't fit our worldview. And Jesus doesn't fit a lot of people's worldview.
2: And it is plain to them. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 1 when he talks about those who suppress the truth. He says, since what may be known about God, is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that man is without excuse.
3: You know, the, the whole idea of people wanting evidence of God's existence, He'll if he'll just show me, if he'll just perform a miracle, do something— What we're seeing in the Bible, examples of it repeatedly, and people still rejecting God. Hmm. Our sinful nature has a tendency to continually remove, uh, to move the goalposts. You know, once the field goal has been kicked by God, then we decide, well, that's not good enough. We're going to take it and drop it back another 20 yards, or we're going to move it here. Now prove me uh, again that you exist.
2: Can I tell a quick story? I was in junior high. And I was sitting in my church and our church had candles that they would put on the end of a few pews and those special weekends. So it mm-hmm. must've been Christmas or Easter or whatever. And I remember looking at one of these candles and saying, God, if you're real, make that candle go out. <laughs> right? And the fleece. I'm, I'm whatever, I'm 13, 14, 15, yeah. whatever I was. And I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting there, and it doesn't go out. It doesn't go out. Well, we stand up for one of the last songs. We sit down, church is ending, and I look up at the candle. I, I still get emotional saying this story. The candle went out. Mm-hmm. It had a brass top on the top of it, and that brass top had skewed over to the side, <clears throat> and it put the candle out.
1: Mm.
2: Now, what you were just saying, Greg, do you think— I said, oh, Lord, thank you. That's proof. <laughs> and 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 I know you're now real. You know what I did? Ah, and I'm embarrassed to say it. I said, oh, if you're really real, put that candle out.
3: <laughs> That's right. Moving the goalposts. Yeah. Yeah. I moved the goalposts. <laughs> yeah.
1: Now,
2: the second candle never went out, right? <laughs> but I'll never forget the feeling, seeing
1: that one candle that had gone out. I had a professor who was very evangelical, and he said, here's the problem with miracles, or any of those. He said, if we were there and Jesus performed a miracle, after we got done, within five minutes, we'd be saying, do it again, just a little bit slower. Put that other candle out. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So good, you guys. All right. Um, In Luke 16, Jesus is appealing. I'm sorry, No. I'm in the wrong place. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, it's Luke, Luke 15. Go to Luke 15, and we're talking about the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus is appealing now to these men who would be familiar with being a shepherd, and says, "What man of you?" So he's being pretty specific. Having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which was lost. I think I've probably read that 50 times where I thought the sheep got away on its own. And I read it this week uh, during the show and I I thought, wait a minute, it sounds like the shepherd lost one of them. Hmm. What do you think about that? For
2: discussion only doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the
0: lost sheep yeah
3: but what Bill is saying he says it? he has lost one of them but that's, that's
0: the question yeah I'm wondering because I've always read it the other way that the sheep one of them wandered off on its own and so so I'll go, re- I'll, I'll risk going first
2: here <laughs> I think the the word lost in it's kind of like, well, it's his fault. He's the one who lost it. I don't know that I see that in this parable. It's not the sheep's I, fault. Yeah. Well, right? the sheep wandered off. The sheep is missing. However it happened, the right. sheep is not there. Look, when I... When I Talk about the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Something's lost. And when they come back, it says at the end of the parable that there's great rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. So we're talking about a lost person, I think, clearly being saved. And I think the picture here, remember, when you're talking about parables, you have to look at the <clears throat> the one primary spiritual truth that is being taught in the parable. And, yet, and there's always a risk of extending yeah. the metaphor too far, right? Turn and it I, into an allegory. Yeah. yeah. And I think this... The simple truth with these stories is, God wishes none to perish. Second Peter says that God wishes none to perish. Mm-hmm. I think that's God's heart. He's not satisfied that there are millions of believers. He cares about every single person on the planet, and I think that is the main truth coming from this. Yeah, prayer. and the are
3: biblical you? rules of interpretation underscore just what you said, Jeff. Yeah. That a parable is meant to illustrate one lesson. What happened in the the church during medieval times, they turned many of these parables into allegories that everything meant something. Yes, Every aspect of the parable meant something. They allegorized it to support various positions. But the biblical rules of interpretation are that the parable has one lesson to teach us, and you can't read into the various points within it, not that you were, Bill.
1: <laughs> I wasn't. Bill, you were, Bill, these guys are right, but let me support you for a moment. Thank you, Tom.
0: You're, you're welcome back next week.
1: When I was overseas and I was among people that had sheep, the father would send the sons out with the sheep to graze them during the day. If one, if they came back and there was one missing, nobody blamed the sheep. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You know, the father said, you lost my sheep. You go out and find him now. Mm-hmm. So... You're right. It's a parable. We don't want to push this too far, but the responsibility is always on the shepherd. And Jesus takes that responsibility. Come looking for us. Mm-hmm. We didn't go looking for Him. I've been wander I wandered most of my life until Jesus got a hold of me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's an interesting text.
0: The little red hen reminds me of the wisdom calling out in Proverbs 120. the The hen would call out for others to participate in the work. But they couldn't be bothered, so she did the work by herself, yet they were willing and desiring to eat from her labors. That's the little red hen, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Does this resemble our society in any way today, that the needs for workers is great, but supply seems to be falling on fewer people, especially for physically demanding jobs, but the cries of government provision are greater and ongoing? What can we incorporate to encourage Many hands make lighter work and meet many more needs, especially how to incorporate those who want donations or are without. Getting real helps to real needs in a sustainable, dignifying, uplifting manner beyond handouts.
1: I have worked in the inner city. I have pastored Mm -hmm. in the inner city. I see people all the time, you know, in these situations. Uh, I constantly have people knocking at the door, wanting money, wanting food or variety of things. And certainly we help where we can, uh, where it's appropriate. Here's the problem, though. Every one of those people, when I talk to them, sees themselves as a victim of somebody or something else. Mm. And therefore, they don't want to do anything. They want you to take care of their problem. Because I have taken these people literally and offered them jobs. I have offered them work opportunities. They don't want that in many cases. They want to be able to live the lifestyle they want. Mm Mm-hmm but they don't want to take responsibility for it. And I think of St. Paul's words because I think he had the same problem in the early church. And he says the bottom line is those that don't work don't eat. And I think that's true. We have to help people not only feeding them, and I do believe in feeding people and taking care of them, and I've done a lot of that, but we have to also be pushing them to start taking responsibility for their life. And here's the other thing that I'm tired of hearing from our media. Being on the streets like I have been, not everybody who's living on the street is mentally ill. Not mm-hmm. everybody on the street is a drug addict. There are plenty out there. Mm-hmm. But I've run into people out there that used to be lawyers. I've run into people living on the street that used to be medical doctors. They just get tired of people. They didn't want to be bothered by it anymore because they were so overwhelmed. So there's much more to this story than we normally understand. And most of what we're trying to do today is really not helping the situation. You know, sometimes it's hard to go ahead and discern
3: whether or not you're contributing to somebody else's dysfunctionality. And so oftentimes that prevents us from responding to the Holy Spirit. And sometimes God may compel you, as we talked about at an inconvenient moment, regardless of the worth of the individual receiving it or whether or not they deserve it or whether or not they even call themselves a victim— Oftentimes, your gift or your reaching out or what you've done, see it as an act of worship to God. They simply are the beneficiary. Sure. So it's an act of worship to God. Now, I'm suggesting that, that no matter where you see that, somebody with a sign on a corner, you should stop and give them something. But sometimes the Holy Spirit will urge you to do something that doesn't make sense, and Instead of arguing with the Holy Spirit, understand it as an act of worship to God. That person just happens to be the
1: beneficiary, whether they appreciate it or not. Thanks for tacking that on, because I've experienced that too. You're absolutely right. There are times the Spirit pushes you. It doesn't make sense, but you do it anyway. There is some great wisdom in that question.
2: Uh, the level of transfer payments in our country is at all-time record highs, and I think that
0: questioner should
2: be put in charge of some of our policies in
0: this country. <laughs> Amen. Amen. All right. Let me know what questions you have. 877-933-2484. I'll say that one more time. 877-933-2484. Last more Guy Talk Ahead. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at myfaithradio.com. All right, we're back with Guide Talk. Let me know what you have to ask the guys. 877-933-2484. They are hungry for your question. I know you got one. You've probably had one in the back of your brain for days, months, or years. Send it over, 877-933-2484. All right. Um, gentlemen, do you know anything about the New Apostolic Reformation? I don't. I think it's a, is it a new denomination without a lot of real leadership? I, I, I don't know what that is. New I, Apostolic i would generalize it as a
2: resurgence of kind of uh, reformed theology um even amongst some evangelical churches um and and the doctrines associated with reformed theology if you will uh some of them um some of them good some of them maybe not so good but uh yeah
3: I, um I just I just looked this this up. It says the New Apostolic Reformation or NAR, that's what you're referring to, right? Yes. Is an unbiblical religious movement that emphasizes experience over scripture, mysticism over doctrine, and modern day apostles over the plain text of the Bible. A particular distinction in the New Apostolic Reformation are the role and power of spiritual leaders and miracle workers, the reception of new revelations from God an overemphasis on spiritual warfare and a pursuit of cultural and political control in society. The seeking of signs and wonders in the NAR is always accompanied by blatantly false doctrine.
1: Hmm.
0: There you go. I don't think we need to say anything else about that. Thank you. Unless, Tom, you're...
1: No, I looked up the same thing.
0: All right. This question relates to the first hour when we were talking about uh, sexual purity. I think that came up. And this question is uh, about someone I love very much has the impression that they can continue to explore sexual activity and all you have to do is just ask for forgiveness. I mean, I know that's right, that you can ask for forgiveness, but shouldn't you stop and say, well, I can repent, but shouldn't there be more leadership from pastors about um,
3: trying to do more and be better? along with repentance. Forgiveness is free, but it's not cheap. I mean, it's not something that you wear as a talisman, and you go ahead and do what you want to do, and then all of a sudden you bring it out and cover it by by something. So, it, again, it's justification of something that the Scripture... You, the, the idea is you have to allow Scripture, all of Scripture, to inform you about what you believe on a particular subject. You can't make a doctrine out of you know just one verse. So the idea here is is that what does the Bible have to say about relationships between men and women, between a husband and a wife, uh, between a, uh, in, in, in terms of a single person before marriage?
1: And it's clear that it doesn't support the position of this
3: individual that, that's been talked about.
1: First of all, nobody wants—I have two granddaughters, and I'm praying with all my heart that they follow the Lord and they don't get involved in a lot of relationships before marriage— and that they stay faithful in marriage. I think we all want that for our kids. But when we become adults and we try to justify our behavior, that's where we get ourselves in trouble. I had a woman come to me about 10 years ago, and she said, I've, I've been listening to these people on TV, and I think that I'm sexually bound to the men I had sex with before I got married. And I said, well, okay. You know, i Uh, What do you mean you're sexually bound? She goes, I think about them. When I'm with my husband, I'm thinking about other things. I said, all right, you know, well, we can pray and ask the Lord to to relieve that. And at that time in my walk with the Lord, I had had been learning that, and I said to her, look, I'm not interested in who these guys are, but if you want to, you know, as we pray, if you just want to lift up these guys' first name, I was thinking two or three, you know, and bring them for the Lord. I'm not kidding you guys. After 40 guys, names came up. I just sat there with my mouth open, not knowing what to say. And no wonder she was so bound up. Hmm. And her new husband, and I never said a word to him because I believe in confidentiality, but her new husband had no idea there were this many men in her life. And she felt that she was a piece of trash. And that's that's a shame. She's still redeemed by Jesus. He can heal her, but it was a long process. You know, the... Paul actually asks this question
2: in Romans chapter 6. This is often kind of referred to as a license to sin. If the grace of God is so great and his forgiveness is so complete, do we not have then a license to sin? And the answer is no. Paul actually asks this question after describing the grace of God. He asks in Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He says, By no means. We've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We don't have a license to sin. We have a license from sin, a forgiveness of sin that is complete. That doesn't mean we are to use our freedom to then go indulge our sinful nature once again.
0: All right. Let me know what you have for questions. 877-933-2484. I love hearing from you. And you can send it over on the text because we are going to go to break right now. So when we come back from break, I'll see your question. I'll ask it. And just like that, we'll get your question on the air. Uh, If you uh, don't know, if you're hearing the voice of God is feeling good, the same as feeling God. Is there anything you can do when God seems silent? There's nothing like God's presence. But it's not always easy to experience. Thanks to our friends at W Publishing, you can win Susie Larson's new book, Closer Than Your Next Breath. Where is God when you need him most? Faith Radio is giving away $1 hundred copies. Enter to win yours right now at myfaithradio.com. We'll be right back. Like the snappy, lively banter that goes on during the breaks. Because that's what happened here on Guy Talk. A lot of snappy banter. Greg, you said something I thought was obvious but profound, and that we have this incredible inability to manage ourselves.
3: Yeah, that uh, as human beings, it just I, it gets proven. All you have to do is listen to the news, read the paper, and it just drives me back to the same place. That man is incapable of managing himself. So that's why we need a Savior. Amen. You guys want to jump in on that, or should we move on? Well, yeah, that's why we're
2: led by the Spirit, right? We're supposed to be not by ourselves, but by the Spirit. If, if you walk by the Spirit, if you keep in step with the Spirit, you will then not gratify the desires of the flesh. Without that Spirit and the control and the self-control as one of the fruits of the Spirit, oh, the world's a mess. Have you noticed the, the damage and destruction and hurt and brokenness
0: that's in this Unbelievable. world? Yeah. yeah, Which leads me to my next question, guys, uh, 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So how are people going to ever get spiritual wisdom if they're not
3: going to be able to accept things except through the Spirit? It's impossible for them to get spiritual wisdom apart from the Spirit. Right? They can have worldly wisdom. They can have common sense, but they can't have godly wisdom because that's of the Lord. So the idea is is that maybe the, the, the implication of that comment, Bill, yeah. is, well, gee whiz, how is anybody ever going to understand the claims of the gospel if they can't comprehend it, if it doesn't make sense to them? That's where, again, it's not up to you and me. It's up to the Spirit of God to convince them of the validity of that truth, to bring that conviction on so that they come to a place that overcomes their cynicism or their skepticism and capitulate, bend their knee, receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, and then read the Bible afresh and understand things that they were never capable of being able to understand apart from the Spirit.
1: From a pastor's point of view, I've watched this over and over. People that are, think they're very intellectual, they're doing well in the job, they've got money, they've got health, they don't need the Lord. They, this, this Christian stuff, who needs that stuff? Wait till they get sick. Wait till one of their kids rebels against them. Wait till their spouse walks out on, on them and says, I've got somebody else. It's at that moment that they hit rock bottom. And it's at the rock bottom moment that Christians need to be there for these people because that's the opportunity for the spirit to speak to their heart and for them to actually listen rather than just reject it. Remember that statement? Guys, uh, there's no atheists in foxholes.
3: Yes. Yeah. I mean, when you're faced with a dilemma that you have no control over, that you're incapable of resolving, that is, you're sensing is impending doom, it's amazing to me that often people who have, in their arrogance, rejected Christ while things were going good, all of a sudden appeal to God at that moment, if you'll just do this, Lord, mm-hmm. if you'll save me from my... this. I mean, I, can you imagine in Vietnam or... Um, in, in Desert Storm or, or all the wars that we've experienced, you come to face-to-face with the reality of impending death, then the Spirit of God, I mean, if we're all created in the image of God, that rises up and all of a sudden you make that plea for somebody you didn't even believe because you're in trouble.
2: And if it's a plea for simply physical salvation... It's probably not a saving plea. If it's a plea yeah. for spiritual salvation from the second death, then it probably is. Remember, the psalm says, a fool says in their heart, there is no God. That is the fool according to God. And I, I love Ecclesiastes 10. It says, a wise man's heart inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left, right? So the unbeliever, because they say there's no God. Is a fool in God's eyes. In
1: Ecclesiastes 3, I have hung on to this verse where Solomon says, eternity is in their hearts. And mm-hmm. so whether they want to believe it or not, deep down inside, as you were mentioning, Craig, it's there. How do we help unearth that? And usually it's through crisis. All right, gentlemen, Satan is a fallen angel from heaven,
0: and Jesus is from heaven. But yet when Satan tempts Jesus in the desert, he used the question, if... You are the Son of God. Do you think Satan truly
3: was unsure of who Jesus was? I think he was trying to... Remember that Satan cannot read your mind. It's interesting to me, the dialogue that you're mentioning, Bill, it's verbal communication one to another. So it's not that Satan was wondering if he's the Son of God. He was trying to cast doubt in the Son of God. Mm-hmm. If, it was a conditional statement. If you are the Son of God... So appealing to him either to exercise his power or to question his identity.
2: Well, and it was the power, right? Because it was the turn these rocks into bread, yeah. right? So use that power. Yeah, I, I
1: agree with that. Philippians 2 is the key verse, and we probably haven't spent enough time on this in terms of preaching and teaching. But it says very plainly there that he, in his human form, he gave up. His powers. He literally depended totally on the Father, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And I think the mistake we make, I I had somebody say to me, well, you know, nobody knows when the second coming is going to occur, not even Jesus. I said, wait wait a minute, wait. He said that during his earthly life because he was totally human as well as God. But once he rose from the dead, he's back to being totally God again and that glorified body, and he knows everything. I agree. When we read about Jesus' earthly life, We can't limit him to eternity for what's there. Here, he limited himself for a purpose. And in that purpose, uh, I'm sure Satan knew exactly who he was and went after him to throw him off course. All right. Thank you for that, Tom Parrish.
0: All right. Abraham and Isaac, why and how can God expect Abraham to kill his son as a test of faith? I know the Holy Spirit doesn't tempt to sin. You know, if the Holy Spirit tells you to kill, that is not the Holy Spirit. If you can explain,
3: thanks. It, it's, when, you, when you look at that scripture, what we don't have is the moment-by-moment understanding of what the relationship was between uh, Isaac and his son, I mean, between Abraham and his son. Um, so the idea here is that God may have known, well, God knows the hearts of all of us, so there must have been some a part, one of the reasons could possibly be that there must have been such a, a, a relationship between the father and the son that put God in second place or that um, he felt so strongly about his son that it would interfere with what God was going to do with him in the future. So he had to be brought to a point where he had to make a decision between God or his son so i'm I i do not think the instrument of killing his son was the issue as much as the allegiance potentially that Abraham might have had um with his son as opposed to his allegiance with God, so that's just you know my 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 cut at this this
2: is this is for me personally one of the most difficult passages in all of scripture is the the command by God for Abraham to sacrifice his son. Um, I I get the prophetic picture that is the result of this story, right? God did not spare his own son, but sacrificed his own son. And we know that God did stop it. And in the New Testament, we get the picture that Abraham figured that God was going to be able to raise him from the dead. And by the way, his own son is raised from the dead. And of course, at the end, Ab- uh, Abraham sacrifices uh, a, a ram caught in the thicket mm. that is provided for God. And that's that's in the sacrifice of Christ. Christ. God is the one that ends up providing the sacrifice. So I get all those prophetic pictures, but there's still a part of me that's like, wow, this is quite a test. This is quite a test of God to kill your your own son. And it's, it's one of the most, I think, for me personally, one of the most difficult passages in scripture.
1: Well, it is called a test, but I think that we have to look at it from the Lord's point of view. Archaeologically, we know that every culture up to the time of Abraham and after Abraham sacrificed children. you got a Molech. There was so much of this. Child sacrifice was a normal part of life. So Abraham wouldn't have seen this as a totally uncommon thing. And so he was willing to do that. But I think the Lord stopping him In the midstream and showing him the the goat or the ram that they then sacrificed is saying, that's over for my people. We're not going to be sacrificing to the gods anymore with our children. We are going to sacrifice. You're going to use sheep and lamb and, you know, things like that. But ultimately, he sacrificed his own son as the one and only sacrifice for sin. Mm -hmm. And so that never had to be repeated.
0: Yeah, that's an above-average answer, Tom, for a guy who's not going to get pizza tonight. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank
0: and you. I'm just saying. I understand. I understand. Yeah. All right, here's another question. Uh, hey, guys, can Satan make you feel things? I usually get weepy in worship or when I encounter certain people. Can I depend on that being from the Holy Spirit?
3: <clears throat> well, it's obvious that the enemy can sow thoughts in your mind. It can't read your mind Now, those thoughts may create emotions within you, and that may be the intent of Satan by sowing that thought in your mind. Uh, So that's
1: the connection is sowing the thought that elicits the emotion. I've never known Satan and and other people I've dealt with to give anybody a thought that aligns with the Lord. Hmm. What he puts in people's heart is shame and guilt and lust and envy and things like that. Or, why don't I have what that other person has? But when the Lord, when you are in the church and you find yourself, you see a a woman with a child and the husband has just died, and you're emotionally distraught by that, and you're praying for them or whatever, that's what the Lord, the devil doesn't want you doing that. And so it really comes back to the devil will always lie to us, and his goal is to get us to do the opposite of what Jesus wants. You know,
2: If you think about a say a business guy, he's on a trip, he's away from home, he's uh, sitting at the bar in the hotel lobby, and you know Satan doesn't need to read that guy's mind when he sends you know a forty year old beautiful woman up to them, right? So I I think uh, the discussion I I totally agree with. I think, but he can sow thoughts into people's minds, even though he can't control your emotions or your feelings.
3: He's a great reader of human behavior he's had centuries yes to um, examine humankind remember he was a created angel um, he had high intellect obviously he certainly didn't have the attributes that god had um, but the idea is he, he was an angel so He's had centuries to view humankind. He can watch your behavior. Here's an interesting concept. I, I I suggest this to men all the time in my ministry. I said, if I could follow you around for three weeks and you didn't know I was there, I wouldn't have to hear a word that you said. I'd be able to tell you with some degree of assurance after three weeks what you truly believed and what you truly valued by how you believed, but you can't, because you can't keep up a persona indefinitely all i'd have to do is observe if i have the capacity to do that and they all acknowledge well yeah that's probably true think about the, think about satan and think by about the, the way enemy.
2: as a man i already know 80 percent of what you're going to do anyway yeah.
0: so. <laughs> <laughs> i'm right. not even touching this question <laughs> you're yeah. smart tom Parrish. leave that one alone all right I, I had an abortion in 1972 i am a christian and when i arrive in heaven will i see a baby or an adult You know, the glorified
2: body, this is an interesting question because when we talk about our glorified bodies and we will receive a new glorified body if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, it's promised so many times in scriptures, Christ received his new glorified body at his resurrection and walked on the face of the earth for 40 years. Scripture doesn't say how, how old we will be in our glorified body anywhere, but I can't imagine having uh, you know a twenty inch, you know, pre born baby walking around in a glorified twenty inch body. I think they will be glorified, they will receive a new
1: mature,
2: glorified body.
1: Well and the Bible talks about the fact that that ultimately what's coming is the Lord restoring what he had originally created. You know, new heaven and new earth, but it's a restoration of literally paradise. Adam and Eve were not born as children. They were born as adults. And that could walk with the Lord and talk with the Lord. Now, I can't definitively say this, and I'm not going to try to push that. I don't know what you will see, but I know you'll know your baby.
3: Well, yeah, that, that's that's exactly the point. Randy Alcorn in the book Heaven talks about this and says, okay, it kind of poses the question. Some people know you and at, at, at a certain age. And as you age and you no longer are in relationship with them, the question is, are they going to be able to recognize you in heaven? And Randy's position is, he feels that it's uh, evident that we'll be able to recognize, just as you said, Tom, each other, regardless of where we encountered each other when we walked this earth. And so that child, you're going to immediately recognize, and and this is your encouragement, the person who posed Mm -hmm. this question, You're going to recognize your child immediately, and that child is going to recognize you.
2: Because really quick, I think today in this world, we recognize people based on their physical characteristics. We'll have spiritual eyes and be able to see their spiritual self, and that's, I think, how we'll recognize yeah. one see, another.
1: See, I get a preview of this in September because I'm going back for my 55th class reunion, <laughs> and I'll see if I can recognize anybody. Wow.
0: <laughs> All right. We're going to take a break, but we've got time for your question eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Again, 877-933-2484. 2484. My power panel today is Greg Borgon, Tom Parrish, and Jeff Erdorn. Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. We're back with Guy Talk, or guys who talk. Love the questions that have come in today. Thank you so much. This show, these two hours are about you and your questions. My power panel is going to do their very best to answer them. All right, let's see. Here's a question, Guys, just curious, why did the snake receive a punishment when it was Satan within him that tempted Eve? What does it mean the serpent was the craftiest of God's creatures? Who
2: wants I, to take a I, shot at this? I have Tom no Birch?
1: no, I have no real idea. I mean, it says that, but we don't have any real details on what that means. So everything I would say, at least me, would be speculation. It's good speculation, but it's still speculation. Maybe Greg or Jeff has something they want to add.
3: Well, you know, the Bible is full of symbolism. I mean, you just look at the book of Revelation of uh, all the symbolism and the metaphors and so forth. Yeah. So Satan is just depicted as uh, uh, a serpent and will eat the dust um, for, for the rest of its uh, existence. So um, I don't know why he appeared as a serpent and not something else, um, I leave that to to the the one who made him appear. <laughs> so when it says the serpent was the craftiest, was he
2: speaking of the physical animal, uh, such as a snake or whatever this creature was, that was crafty, or was he speaking of Satan? Yeah. who was in the serpent or dwelling the serpent or appearing as a serpent, uh, who was the craftiness? and it's probably Satan. Uh, but then it seems in the judgment, however, uh, where the man gets judged, the woman gets judged, the Satan receives a judgment, and the serpent also receives a judgment uh, for maybe participating in this in some way. So, um, yeah, it's it's kind of confusing. Is Why is God judging the serpent if it was the Satan who was the one who deceived
0: Eve? So, gentlemen, do you think we've got a problem in our fallen nature with taking responsibility. Is that just something that we struggle with because of our fallen nature? Yeah, I think that's
2: one of many issues that fallen man has, right? Um, you know, we just described fallen man as being a fool, a fool says in their heart there is no god. I think discernment and judgment and understanding what is right, what is wrong. Uh look, we have we have a, a society today in our our country that can't even tell you, uh, you know, what a woman is. There was, I just read a, a, a professor in Texas who was fired for teaching that some have XX chromosomes, some have XY chromosomes, and those two need to come together to reproduce the species. And he was fired. Hmm. Um, so we fallen man has many, many issues. Hopefully, when you believe and are saved and have the spirit of truth now indwelling you, you can put away some of the lies of the world and replace
3: it with God's truth. Well, I started in the the Garden of Eden with, with Adam, blaming Eve. Um, so the whole idea is, is that everybody has a sense of their identity, who they perceive themselves to be. And, and when they're asked to take responsibility for something that they don't want to own— That's sin in their life. That's that nature to be independent of even blame for the things that they've done. So the natural inclination is to blame somebody else, to project um, the problem onto someone else because you don't want to own it because that doesn't fit your your idea of your own
1: persona. Hmm. Yeah, I know the guys that are listening right now, a ton of them are saying, what do you mean? I make a good living. I take responsibility for that. It's not if you take your responsibility in one area are you taking responsibility in all areas the Lord has given you? Because I find most businessmen that are very successful often neglect their family because they're so busy with their business. Or if they're so focused on their family, they're neglecting something else. We're called as Christians to be responsible in all areas, our business, the Bible, our spouse, our kids, and that's the challenge for me. How do I stay and keep balanced in all of those areas without just going toward what I like? And the world doesn't take personal responsibility anymore. No.
0: Any more thoughts on that? Because I think this is an, a really interesting topic. I well, mean, I,
2: you know, Greg talked about uh, Genesis chapter three. It, it, did Adam take responsibility? No. Uh, I, I would like to. This is kind of an interesting take. He says the woman you put here <laughs> made me eat some, right? And <laughs> mm-hmm. so he said, you say yeah. you blame the woman. But let me re, let me phrase this again in slightly different emphasis. The woman you put here, made me eat him. So in the end, was he blaming Eve? Well, yeah, he was blaming Eve, but he was really blaming God. uh, And I think man
1: is still doing that today. Mm. Responsibility is something that I think we don't do a good job at teaching people. Uh, Matter of fact, you look at it today, uh, look what's happening in our educational system. Uh, LeBron James just came out and talking about the schools he helped start And the kids are still flunking math after 4 years and everything else. Why is that happening? Well, the problem is the responsibility for those kids has a lot of factors building into it. And we think the government should solve it. The government can't solve any problem like this. But as many of the black pastors I work with tell me, the problem is the home. When you got 7 out of 10 homes that have no father in the black family there, you're going to have boys especially that are not going to be interested in anything because they're not getting any direction. So responsibility is for men, adult men, whether you're black or red or yellow or white, it doesn't matter. You have a child, you're responsible for that child in all areas of their life until they're an adult. But too often we don't do that. Hmm. All right. Uh, Any tips
0: for how to best respond when you hear people using the name of God in vain, especially in the workplace?
3: Well, I, I tell you what I've done in the past, um, especially if I, I knew the individual, I, I just simply used the first person. I said, you know, when I hear the Lord's name taken in vain, it, it it really hurts me because he's who I worship. And so sometimes I'll just say to them, I just would appreciate it if you just wouldn't do that um, because it it, is, it hurts me. Because he's who I worship, and and most of the time, oddly enough, I may be different today. But when that happened several times when I was young in the Lord, uh, people respected
1: that. When I went to my, it's this is class reunion time. I'm sorry, Bill, but it's the no, second time you brought this but, up, Tom. When I went to my twentieth <laughs> class reunion back uh, many years ago. Uh, across the room came one of my friends, and it was well, Jesus, you know, and, yeah, and it, you know. Tom. I said, yes, that's who I work for. And and he just stood there for a second like, what What do you mean you work for him? I said, that's who I serve. Oh, and he apologized on the spot. Mm-hmm. He said, it's wrong. I do that. I've got to stop doing that, but I don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Good word. Here's a
0: question about just, I think the question is getting at God is a, a timeless God who lives in a timeless place, right? And the question is, and it's it's he says it's an offbeat question, but it's sincere. Uh, how God spends His time? How does He spend His days? Knowing that our understanding of time is different from our understanding from from our understanding of time. I don't I even, got
3: a clue but when I get
0: there.
2: Yeah,
1: that's <laughs> uh, I'll, that's I'll why it's an offbeat know. question. So if God <laughs> that was my answer, I don't
2: have a clue. If God created everything, then He created space and matter and time. That's right. So God is outside of time. So the question is, you know, what did God do for billions of years before creation? It, it, it's it's a it's not even a sensical question because there wasn't billions of years. And being outside of time, he doesn't even experience time. So even and by the way, when we are uh, glorified and we will be in the new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem with God, you know, the song says when we've been there 10,000 years, will we still be experiencing time like we know it, or we, will we be something
0: like God who doesn't even exist in time? I mean, it's amazing to think there might be 520 million people praying to God right now, and he's hearing every word That's of right. everybody. Oh, yeah. Everyone. Everyone. Can we not just stand in awe? In awe. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you very much once again for another outstanding uh, time having Guy talk or guys who talk, great questions, really enjoyable time. This is some of my favorite time ever. Just sitting around with friends, fellowshipping about the Lord, talking about God's Word. Hopefully you've been encouraged, and hopefully you learned something today. I know I did, and I'm looking forward to listening to the podcast tonight. And if you missed any of it, that's what I recommend you doing. MyFaithRadio.com podcast will be up shortly. Thanks, Ryan, the producer who made this all work so beautifully. Once again, guys, thanks a lot, and I'll see you next time. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.